The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Scripture text this morning is Acts chapter 2, reading verse 43. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Let's pray. Father, we hear these words, and awe came upon every soul. And God, what what hypocrites we would be if this morning we didn't pray the same thing. That no matter how we come in this morning, whether we're excited happy, content, whether we're disappointed or grieved or burdened or despairing, oh God, I pray that awe of Jesus would fill every soul, that our hope would be in you, that we would see once again that though you have opponents, you have no rivals, you have no competitors, everything else is, is a cheap substitute for you. So God, fill us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we may taste hope, that we would be in awe of who you are and what you've done and all of your promises. Do it in our midst. Don't let any soul leave here without awe in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. Let me just try to give you a a little bit of a flyover of Acts chapter 2. There's been four movements in chapter 2. First, we had the event of Pentecost. That's where we saw the, the miracles at work of the mighty rushing wind and the tongues as of fire and a, a bunch of Galileans speaking in languages they didn't know. And then the question comes in verse 14, what does this mean? So then Peter gives the meaning of Pentecost in his sermon. So you move from the event of Pentecost to the meaning of Pentecost. And there Peter says, all the things that have been poured out that you see in here are proof that Jesus is alive, he's reigning, he's at the right hand, he's poured all of this out. It's proof that Jesus is reigning. And then you had the the harvest of Pentecost. Remember the Pentecost was a harvest fest in which the first fruits of the barley, of the wheat would come. They would be harvested. And here you get the greatest miracle of Pentecost, which is 
the miracle of conversion. 3,000 souls are the first fruits of the great harvest to come among all the nations. And then you see the community of Pentecost. That's where we are now, verses 42 to 47. This spirit-filled community, what characterizes them? What does this early church look like? You see in verse 42, there's four defining characteristics that they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So this community that is spirit-filled, you see this, this great miracle of Pentecost is this conversion of these 3,000 souls, but it's not a miracle that is isolated because the miracle of the new birth leads to the miracle of this new family. This miracle of conversion leads to this miracle of community where they gather together and they love one another and what do they devote themselves to? It's no accident that they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Imagine these people. Here they are gathered together The prophets have spoken of this time when the Messiah would come. And not only did they miss him, they murdered him. This group, this crowd, you can imagine, here they are, Peter saying to them, you murdered the Lord of life, the Son of God. God gave you all of these evidences in wonders and signs that that he had come, he attested it over and over, and you not only missed him, you murdered him. The miracle of conversion is that this group of people, They went from scorning him to savoring him. They went from disregarding him to delighting in him. They went from the meaning that this is proof that Jesus is risen and reigning and they say, he's our king and we murdered him. We need to be saved. When I was a pastor in Louisiana, I'll never forget the story of one of my friends who, there was a string of robberies in the neighborhood, and so he, he got a gun to protect his home, and one night heard a sound, his wife said, I hear something, you should go check it out. So he, he did with this gun, and sure enough, there was somebody in the shadows. He said, identify yourself, who are you? Nothing. Person starts walking forward. He shoots the person. Person dies. He looks, and it's his wife. Imagine the feeling 
that this man had, not only to say a tragedy has happened, my wife died, but to realize, and I did it. This crowd saying crucify him, he deserves to be condemned, now is realizing it wasn't just a tragedy that the Son of God was murdered, but we did it. That's the miracle of conversion, the bad news of the gospel, that we go from thinking he should be condemned to saying we should be condemned. He died for our sin. And here they are, delighting in Jesus, that his blood has forgiven them. And now, this group realizing we've been so wrong, of course they're saying, teach us. If we could miss this from the word of God, then we could miss anything. Teach us. And you have them gathering together in fellowship eating together, breaking bread together. You have the sails of prayer being held up so that the wind of the Spirit would keep moving them. That is this community. And in verse 43, you you see one more thing. One more thing that characterizes them. And verse 43 says it's awe. They are in awe of Jesus. They started in awe of Jesus and all that he's done, and they stay in awe of Jesus as they see all that he's doing. That's verse 43. What characterizes the early church as they gather together is that they started in awe of Jesus and they stayed in awe of Jesus. Don't you want that? Do you want that to be said of our church? The conversion is you start in awe of Jesus, and the Christian life is that you stay in awe of Jesus, and we're all gathering, and the work of discipleship as we gather, stay in awe of Jesus. Let's not let anything get in the way. No competitors, no cheap substitutes. Let's look at the text. What we see in verse 43 is two things. We see that awe came upon every soul, and we see that wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And I'm going to say those two are intricately connected. First, look at this phrase, awe came upon every soul. Let's start with a definition. What does this mean, awe? We kind of throw this word around often, but we don't tend to define it. Here, the word is the Greek word for fear or phobos. You get the word phobia from this. Fear. Not talking about a a terrifying fear, but this is the same word used in the phrase, the 
fear of the Lord, that profound reverence and awe. That's what it's talking about. This worshipful sense of profound reverence. This is the way we use the word awe in English today as well. So a common definition would be something like awe is what happens when the heart is gripped. It's not just a shallow response. It's something happens and the heart is gripped by a feeling of deep amazement when faced with something wonderful, fearful, or stunning. So it could be terror. It could be joy. It could be confusion. Like you're gripped by something. And there's a stunned feeling in your soul. This word occurs four more times in the book of Acts. Twice in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and fall down dead. And it says great fear gripped them. You can understand this. If somebody lies to the Holy Spirit and suddenly they're struck dead, there's a sense of awe gripping the heart that says, this is not a game. This is serious. You don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Sin is a big deal. That's what gripped them. Fear came upon them. We don't play games with God in the Christian community. It shows up again in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. There's the word. Fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. In other words, the church never became this sense of ho-hum, social club. We're just gathering together to talk about earthly things. There's a sense Jesus is at work. Jesus is on the move. They stay in awe of him. Fourth time it occurs, Acts 19, 17. You remember the story, perhaps, of how Paul had been casting out demons. The seven sons of Sceva try to do it as well. They say, we adjure you based on the Jesus that Paul preaches. And the demons say, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of. Who are you? And they attack him. And they run away naked. And then what happens? This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And you remember the rest of the story. They bring their magic books and burn them because they're like, we're not playing games with Jesus. We have seen the one who is all-powerful. Now, Don't miss this great fact then. At conversion, what happened is once he was nothing to them, and now he's everything to them. That defines the Christian church. That's what conversion is. 
Jesus is their great delight. He's like the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price. They're so in awe of him that when they find the treasure, they gladly sell everything they have to buy that field. When they see him as pearl of great price, they gladly sell everything to to gain him. The Christian church starts in awe of Jesus, and this text says they stay in awe of Jesus. But why? Is it just that they keep remembering what he's done for them? No. Read the next part of the verse. Verse 43, all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This is huge. What it's saying is that Jesus is continuing to work. They're not just looking at what he has done, past tense, but they see him continuing to work. And this is the main theme of the book of Acts that we see again and again. Remember when Luke says, my first account, most excellent Theophilus, is what Jesus began to do and teach. And so Acts is what he continues to do and teach. If Luke is about his ministry on earth, Acts is about his ministry from heaven. It's not just the acts of the Holy Spirit, the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of Jesus himself through the apostles by his Spirit. What is key about the apostles when it says they're being done through the apostles is remember the apostles were the chosen official representatives of Jesus. He had commissioned them to continue his work. And remember the John Stott quote, maybe some of you from the very first sermon where he says, this is what sets Christianity apart from other world religions. Other world religions say that the work of the founder was completed in their lifetime, Christianity says, Jesus just began his. He continued it through the apostles. So when we sing, he's still working. He never stops working. That's Acts. And he's continuing to do that today. That is the point of this text. You can see it with the phrase wonders and signs. This is the third time we've seen this unique wording. It's usually everywhere in the Bible, signs and wonders. Here, it's wonders and signs. It only occurs three times in the entire Bible with that order, wonders and signs, and they're all in Acts 2. You think maybe we're supposed to see that. Verse 19, wonders and signs were prophesied by Joel, that in the end times, wonders and signs would be done. Verse 22, Peter says, Jesus did this, the wonders and signs done in his ministry. So you you go back and you think about the, the wonder in the sky with the star heralding the place of his birth. You think of the signs and wonders or wonders and signs that he does as he heals the sick and walks on water and feeds the 5,000 and reaches into death and brings out a little girl. All the things that he does are evidence that he's God. 
And then you get the wonders in the sky at the cross as the sun goes dark, the sign on the earth as the temple veil is torn in two, earthquakes, people come out of the grave, wonders in the sky as Jesus ascends on the clouds. And now verse 43 says, it didn't stop there. The wonders and signs didn't stop when Jesus ascended. They're just beginning. His work wasn't completed. He's still working. If you want to know what were some of those wonders and signs, he says, for example, in Acts 4, you see a man lame from birth, who's healed, but he's healed in Jesus' name to show Jesus is still working. You see in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. That is still Jesus working. You see in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, a summary. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What's the point? The point is, this sounds exactly like what was happening when Jesus walked the earth in the Gospel of Luke. And the point that Luke is making is, Jesus is still at work, this time from heaven through his apostles. Now, what does this mean for us? We don't have any apostles here. Does that mean Jesus is not still at work? And why is it that sometimes it's so hard, if conversion means we start in awe of Jesus, why sometimes, if we're honest, is it so hard to stay in awe? of Jesus. This is where I want to apply now. We need to think through what does this mean in terms of what awe is meant to do, what it's meant to be. We're going to just do like this mini biblical theology of awe, and I think we'll see the answer together. So first thing that we need to see is that we are made to be in awe. In other words, awe is not some religious word that only applies in church or religious context. Aweless living is impossible. We're always going to be in awe of something. The heart is always going to be gripped by something. It's looking for something to be in awe of. That's how we were made. But if our hearts, which were made 
to be in awe of God, if that gets hijacked, it means that we're going to be in awe of created things rather than the creator. Think of it this way. When God made the world, how did he make it? What is its character? For example, Isaiah 6, verse 3, the burning seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of angel armies. The whole earth is full of his what? His glory. Everywhere that you look, you're supposed to see God and not miss him. See that he's great. See that he's glorious. Or Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Everywhere that you go, everywhere that you look, everything that you see, everything that you taste, everything that you feel, that you enjoy is meant to be a sign saying, isn't God great? Isn't God glorious? Isn't God beautiful? Isn't God stunning? That's the way it's supposed to work. And yet, here's what happens. We have what we could call, Paul Tripp calls this in his book, awe, a remembrance awe and a worship awe. So this is the way it's supposed to work. Remembrance awe is because we often have kind of an awe amnesia, remembrance awe is that we see something in the created world that's beautiful or stunning or sweet, and what's supposed to happen is that it awakens awe in the heart, and then the heart is captured by God. So when you see that thing that is a reflection and a pointer to how great God is, awe is awakened. You remember God, that he's great, and then the heart is captured by God. Once again, in worship, this shows how great you are, and we're reminded again how great is our God. But when sin enters the world, all of that changes. So here are Adam and Eve. They have everything. They walk with God in the cool of the day. They have this relationship. They're surrounded by paradise. And yet the temptation given to them is that they just reach a little higher. They don't need God because they can become like God. Knowing good and evil. We don't need God for something anymore. So that reaching for the fruit is like reaching a little bit higher. And ever since that day, people have been on a quest to say, I don't need God. I can be my own God. I can live for my own rules. So now here's what happens. Romans chapter 1. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him 
But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what happens. You get this fallen capacity to be able to see the things of this world and miss God. In fact... It's not that you miss God, it's that you refuse to see Him. You suppress it. See, I don't want to be under Him, like Tom Cruise said in the Dallas Morning News. Why don't you believe in God? Because I don't want any accountability. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. This is saying that our whole world looks at all that God has made, sees God and says, no, thank you. I don't want that. I'm not going to honor you. I'm not going to thank you. I'm, in fact, going to exchange you. And I'm going to live for created things to make me happy, to run my own life, call my own shots, because I don't want you. We now have the corrupted capacity to look at the world around us and miss God. Deny Him. Not be blown away by Him. These things that are not meant to be competing with God, we make competitors with God. And we say, I would rather have this than you. Now, can I just be frank for a moment? Do you not sometimes find this to be true? Even if you're a Christian, this morning, can you say there are times in my life where I don't really even care about redemption, I just want a good steak. There are times when I don't even think about the cross All I want is some peace and quiet. These things that are given by God, all things meant to be richly enjoyed, our hearts have this corrupted capacity to say, ah, I just want that. Forgetting about you. Awe, amnesia. Now here's what happens, therefore. Do you find this in yourself? We have this vocabulary for awe, all of us. So, for example, that just amazes me. That's vocabulary for awe. Whoa, I can't believe he did that. Could be a basketball player, March Madness, It could be a singer, it could be something else, could be somebody that did something terrible. Whoa, that's awe. If I only had this, then I would. That's awe vocabulary. I dream about that. When I grow up, I want blank. I wonder what it would be like to have blank. Can you believe that she got blank? All of that's all vocabulary. 
The person who goes to the mall or the museum is searching for awe. The person who goes to the grand stadium for the concert or the playoffs or the Grand Canyon, they're all looking for awe, something to grip the heart. Whether you're the little boy dreaming of the Lego Batman toy or the middle school boy looking at the 2013 retro red and black Nike Air Jordans dreaming about wearing them, whether you're the teenage girl looking at the perfect prom dress and wanting to go to prom, whether you're the adult who wants to have the the perfect house or you're the the guy that wants to catch the biggest fish or have the biggest truck or the person who's looking at the next business deal. All of that is the search for awe. All of it. You're dreaming about it. And what happens is whether you go to expensive restaurants play the next video game, scroll through social media, all of it is a search to be wowed, to be gripped. And here's what happens. Awe amnesia leads to a kind of spiritual atrophy of the heart. Here's what Paul Tripp said in his book on awe. So true. Here's the bottom line. When you are blind to the stunning, expansive glory of God. When you fail to remember his infinite greatness, you live with an atrophied heart. Rather than your view of life continuing to expand to the size of God's great grandeur, your perspective on life will shrink to the size of your own personal hopes and dreams or to the size of the surrounding physical world and what it has to offer. You will eat little of the true and satisfying food of God's glory. You'll try to feed yourself with the non-nutritious morsels of the temporary glories of creation. And because you won't be getting the proper spiritual nutrition, you'll be constantly hungry. Your spiritual muscles will shrink and you will be unable to live as God intended. You were made for so much more. You were made to be in awe of God, not to shrink His greatness into the size of your personal hopes and dreams. All this living is impossible. We all are seeking it. And so, that feeling that you have before maybe a a major purchase or a big job interview, or a new relationship. What is that? That's the sense of awe. This is going to get me something I'm wanting or hoping for. And that sense of disappointment or anger or discontentment that comes when that relationship isn't all that you hoped it was, when that job isn't all that you hoped it would be, when that purchase doesn't give you all that you hoped it would, You don't have a contentment problem or an anger problem. You have an awe problem. It's been misplaced. You tried to replace awe of God with awe of creation. So here's what redemption does. The law, can we all agree, 
The law cannot fix our awe problem because the law can't capture the heart. It only reveals what's already captured the heart. It just shows us that we've sinned, that that was sin, that that was sin, that that was sin. The law can't do it. Only the gospel comes and says, for all of the times that you have lived your own life, called your own shots, looked for awe in all the wrong places and used these things as competitors to God when they should have been making you worship God, God sends his son to die on the cross for every time we've sinned that way. And what happens is not only is there forgiveness, there's awe. Here's what I mean. Imagine. Imagine that there was a king who ruled over this great dominion territory, and there's a city that decides we're not going to be under that rule anymore. We're done with you. We're going to rule ourselves. And let's say that that great king sends his son to plead with them that they would come back under his rule. And they decide to murder the son, and shame him by by putting his dead body over the city wall. Now, what should the king do? Everybody knows that's the king's son. That king should just go and burn that city to the ground. But let's say that he says, I am going to consider the murder of my son as the payment for your sins. That's already awe, jaw drop, what? But then he says, in fact, not only will the death of my son be the the purchase to forgive you, but I'm going to now invite you home with me. I'm going to have you live with me. I'm going to take you on as my sons and daughters so that you live with me and you enjoy all that I have. You would be like, what? This is the story that is the one true story that leaves you with the greatest sense of awe that after all that I've done, to rebel against you. You would do that to save me? You want me to be with you forever? If the gospel isn't filling you with awe, you don't get it. There's some disconnect. Conversion is when you see all that God has done in the gospel and your soul is in absolute shock and awe in how he saves you. And then what happens in sanctification is now things can actually work the way they're supposed to. You get two mnemonic devices. You get the mnemonic devices of creation 
and you get the mnemonic devices of the new creation. Here, here's what I mean. The mnemonic devices of creation, once Christ takes his rightful place as the ruler of our hearts, remembrance awe can actually lead, Esther, but I wonder if you could give me those Kleenex there. Silly me. I thought I could preach the gospel without tears. Now that your soul is filled with a sense of awe, now remembrance awe can actually lead to worship awe. This is what Paul Tripp said. The earthly father can be a God-given mnemonic device to remind us of the glory of the heavenly father. And I'm aware it doesn't work for everyone that way. The shepherd becomes a mnemonic device to remind us of God's care for his own. The snow reminds us of the Lord's purity and holiness. The storm reminds us of God's power and wrath. The rising sun reminds us of God's daily faithfulness. We are literally surrounded by the gracious reminders of the presence, power, authority, and character of God. It means that suddenly you can do what 1 Timothy 5 says, or 6, you, all the things that he richly gives you to enjoy, you can worship him for it. When you have the root beer float or the shamrock shake, you can say, how sweet is God? These things become a sign. Whether it's the, the electric car that can go zero to 60 in 1.7 seconds or the PSI bite of the great white shark that terrifies you because it could kill you, all of these things are reminders of the glory of God. They're signs. Now, you all know this. If there is a sign that says Great Lakes Candy Shop ahead, you don't look at the sign and try to eat it, right? You don't stand there and say, satisfy me. The sign is pointing to the place where all the candy is. And in the same way, suddenly creation and all of its reminders being full of the glory of God, you don't stay there and say to the sign, satisfy me, you let the sign do its work to point you to the only one who can really satisfy. But then you get these new creation mnemonics. That's what's happening in Acts 2.43 where Jesus keeps working. Every conversion, every answered prayer, every changed life become stories to remind you in your awe amnesia. Oh, Aslan's still on the move. Jesus is still alive. He's still working. When we give baptism testimonies and you hear it, yes, God is still working here. So one of the things that we want to do going forward is not just have testimony time for baptisms, but to have testimony time as part of our services where you get to hear this sense of God is at work. Like last week when we heard James Leckler say, one of, one of the pastors was talking to him and was like, well, any, you want to come uh, do this gospel work here near San Diego? No, but I was just talking to this person and now I'm going to connect you. What do you think that did with James Leckler? There was a sense of awe. Jesus is at work and he's connecting these things in an amazing way. We just sang the song, Waymaker. We believe, and I've seen at this church, 
he's still working. And because we're such awe amnesiacs, we need reminders of how he's still at work. So we're going to find ways to have testimony time. Uh, I'll let you know in my campus pastor email how if you want to share testimonies, you can do that. But don't just think corporate worship. When we talk about our discipleship strategy, we're talking about the right foot, left foot of corporate worship and small groups. The life on life, like this early church experience where they started in awe of Christ and stayed in awe of Christ, we, we think small groups is a great place for that to devote yourself to the Word, to have fellowship, the breaking of bread, eating together, and sharing these stories of how God is still at work. Here's how I want to close our service. Let us remember that all of these signs all around us are not meant to be the the sign that we try to stay by and say satisfy us. All of these signs are pointing us to the place where all the sweetness comes from. This is what C.S. Lewis said. It was when I was happiest that I longed most. Does that resonate with anybody? In moments of great joy, it's not you saying now I don't long for anything more. When you are happiest, it's when you awakening of longing is even more. What would it be like for this to be multiplied? That's what Lewis is saying. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. Can we agree that just like the early church, we want to be a place where every soul would be in awe of Jesus and we would stay in awe of Jesus till we all get to the place where we are in mega awe of Jesus because we see him face to face and there's no more corrupted capacity to miss him or try to replace him. That's where we're all going. If you know Jesus, let's pray. Father, you know, you know how I look out at my people and love them. And God, how I want to be this place where awe would be upon every soul. So I pray for those that that have never been in awe of you, Jesus, that they would hear the gospel and they would hear your invitation to be forgiven and not just to say you can go, but you can stay forever. And they would come and be in awe for the first time and for those that have lost their sense of wonder and awe, that you would restore it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 
5-5-4-1-5. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.